Father, we do just pray today that uh, you give us the grace to get through this text. And Lord, without any more distractions, I just pray for uh, your spirit to move on us, Lord. And uh, usually, Lord, when there's something important you want to say, there's, there's all sorts of distractions that try to prevent people from uh, hearing what you have to say, Lord. So I just ask today that you bless this study. Father, again, do let us be mindful as we look at this curse today, just how serious it is, Lord, the, the death and pain and sorrow that came into this world because of Adam and Eve's sin, Lord, the death and pain and sorrow that comes into this world because of our own sin. But, Lord, the good news that we're going to see today, uh, and we, we all know through the gospel that, that you have reversed that curse, Lord. Uh, and, and we don't have to live under a curse. That's, that's the lesson you're going to teach us. But, but, Lord, help us to see, I think most of us know, living in a fallen world, just how serious this curse is. But, but help us to be mindful of that today, Lord, and, and just, uh, again, just be overwhelmed with gratitude for what you've done uh, on the cross to, to change things back to way you, the way you originally intended them, Lord. I just ask that you, for a blessing on our study today. I ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. Okay, last week uh, we were looking at the curse, and we were looking at the spiritual part of the curse, which I think was the very worst part of the curse. And if you remember, Adam and Eve, when they ate of the forbidden fruit, the moment they ate of that fruit, they died spiritually. I mean, they, they, they were filled with the Shekinah glory of God. They were, they were glowing with the Shekinah glory of God, and they ate of that fruit. And just as God said, you eat of the fruit and you will surely die. And they died, and, and that light, that, that glowing light that had clothed them, that had wrapped them in the righteousness and goodness of God, it was gone. And they looked at themselves, and they realized that they were naked. Well, that was pretty bad. But as we're going to see today, uh, God wasn't done punishing Adam and Eve. And so uh, we're going to continue on today as we look at the physical curse that God placed on them. Uh, that he placed on them, and that he placed on the earth, and that he placed on the devil. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his allegorical book entitled The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you've never read that book, and you want a picture of the gospel uh, and the redemption of mankind, the fall and the redemption, read the line, the witch in the wardrobe, because it puts it in picture form. He, and as part of that picture, he gives a graphic uh, uh, painting of uh, the curse. Uh, and uh, in this mystical land, this allegorical land that represents earth called Narnia. And he sets the picture like this at the beginning of the book. And, and listen to what he says. He says, Narnia was once a place of vibrant colors and warmth. However, since the white witch cursed the land, it is now always winter. You see the, I mean, you see the picture he's given there? I and mean, why did C.S. Lewis choose winter as a metaphor for our fallen earth? Because we all know that in winter, everything is either asleep, hibernating, or it is dying. And that is a picture of the earth since the fall because everything is either asleep or it's dying. We have been in a long spiritual winter ever since Adam and Eve ate 
of the forbidden fruit. Now, uh, something happens in the story of Narnia, though. If you've read the book, you know where I'm heading here. But whenever the lion shows up, and the lion is the Christ-like figure in the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, whenever the lion shows up, uh, then things begin to change. The snow and ice begin to melt. The flowers begin to bloom. And uh, just by the lion's presence, this curse begins to be reversed and uh, springtime comes back to Narnia. Well, that's a picture of Jesus' presence on this earth ever since the fall. Whenever he is present, then the curse begins to be reversed. I mean, when he was present in the Theophanies in the uh, uh, Old Testament, you see the beginnings of the reversal of this curse. When he's present in the prophets, as he speaks through the prophets, these words of prophecy that we have in the Old Testament, the curse begins to be reversed. And then when he comes and he's present in a physical body in Bethlehem as a little baby, you talk about reversing the curse. He came to reverse that curse. And then he died on a cross to reverse that curse. And he was resurrected from the dead to reverse that curse. And he lives in the church now, and he's setting out to reverse that curse. Now, we're going to explore the reversal of the curse a little bit, but first let's, let's take a look at the curse itself. And uh, we, the first thing we're going to look at, we're going to, we're going to pick back up in, in uh, verse number 14, and we're going to look at the curse of the devil. Now, remember, Adam and Eve have eaten of the forbidden fruit. God has... They have died spiritually, and now God is going to curse them physically. But first, he's going to curse the devil. And that's why we had all of those distractions earlier. Now, we're going to read this, whether he likes it or not. Verse number 14. So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And so here was the devil, I believe, before the fall, he actually could, or the serpent, rather, who the devil possessed, the serpent could actually stand, and he actually had hands and feet. And I believe that. And scientists believe that, too. Let me read you a piece of an article from, from uh, Live Science, and listen to what they say about the anatomy of snakes, and I'm quoting here. It says, based upon two recent scientific studies of the snake's bone structure, it is clear that snakes once sported full-fledged arms and legs. Now, here's where they come up with their theory. But genetic mutations caused the reptiles to lose all four of their limbs some 150 million years ago. The article goes on to say, the findings are welcome news to herpetologists who have long wondered what genetic changes cause snakes to lose their arms and legs. Well, I'm going to tell you what, I could have saved them a lot of money and a lot of time. I could have told them to read Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, because some 6,000 years ago, God cursed the snake species and took away their arms and legs, and ever since that time, they've been crawling on their bellies and eating dust. Poor snakes. You know, wouldn't you hate to have been the snake that the devil chose to inhabit? 
I mean, you got to ask the question. I mean, it's the serpent, Satan, that should be cursed, not the snake itself. But God cursed the snake as an object lesson for all time, for us to see, because, because snakes epitomize uh, Satan, and they epitomize evil. You just think about it. Snakes strike fear. They might not strike fear in you, but they strike fear in most people. I, I, there's nothing that scares me more than a poisonous snake. I mean, I, snakes scare me half to death. And, and look at the picture that paints of the devil and his demons because nothing, nothing on this earth should scare us more than Satan and his wicked schemes, Satan and his demons, because he's set out to seek those whom he can devour. That's his goal, to devour as many as he possibly can. And so he should strike fear in all of us. Now, in Christ, perfect love casts out fear, so we don't have to fear Satan. You don't have to feel fear poisonous snakes. You can pick them up now and hold them, and they can bite you. And you'll ever, No, don't do that. I'm, I'm joking. But we don't have to fear anything in Jesus Christ. Uh, snakes, what do they do? They lie in the dark. And why do they lie in the dark? Because they're waiting to strike, to, to bite with their fangs and inject their poison venom. And that's exactly a picture of what Satan does. He, he and his demons hide in dark places. They hang out in dark places, and they're waiting to strike. They're waiting to strike and inject their venom of wickedness on whoever might fall into their uh, prey. Uh, now, there's a lesson right there. You stay out of dark places, and you're going to have a lot less chance of being bit by Satan and his demons. Snakes also crawl on their bellies, and they eat dust. And, and that's a vivid picture to me of all of Satan's followers. I mean, I believe they're lowlifes. I mean, if I call you a snake, I am not complimenting you. I can tell you that right now. When I call someone a snake, what I'm saying is that you're like an angel of light. You come off as a really good person, but really you're full of evil. Uh, you're full of wicked schemes. You're a liar. You're sneaky. That's what I think of when I think of a snake, when I think of a person who's a snake. Now, I can name some politicians. In fact, I might ought to do it seeing the elections or Tuesday who are snakes. Uh, one in particular, I'm not going to name, we're going to go on right here because I don't do politics, but let's go to the next thing. Snakes crawl on their bellies and they eat dust. And that's, that's, there's another symbolic meaning there because that's the position of Satan ever since Jesus died on the cross and he got the victory on the cross. Because listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 7. He says, at the cross... Uh, Christ disarmed principalities and powers. He defanged the principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle over them, trying, triumphing over them. At, at the cross, Satan was brought down to the dust, and now he's crawling on his belly, belly uh, in submission to the Lord. I mean, the Satan cannot do anything anymore that the Lord does not allow him to do. Actually, he never could do anything that the Lord didn't allow him to do. The Lord actually allowed him to possess the serpent and to deceive Adam and Eve, uh, to tempt them, 
to, to give them a chance to show whether or not, or test whether or not they truly love the Lord. And as we, as we saw when they ate of the fruit, they didn't truly love the Lord. They truly didn't trust the Lord. They truly didn't believe the Lord. And God tested them on that, and God allowed that. All right, now, Satan's fall is the basis of the next part of the curse that we see on uh, Satan. Uh, look at verse number 15. He says, and I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, Eve, and between her descendants, and between your seed, that's interesting, Satan's seed, and her seed, now notice seed there, uh, at least if you have the New King James, and I think in most translations that's the case, this word seed is capitalized. Now why is it capitalized? Because the seed that, that God is speaking of here is the Christ, the Messiah, the one that would come and reverse the curse. And then he goes on and he says, and this seed, the Messiah, he shall bruise your head. No. Yeah, he shall bruise your head or crush your head, really a better translation there, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, when God says, looking back here at this verse, when he, he says he put enmity between you and the woman, what's he saying there? What he's saying, I will prevent you from totally destroying the offspring of Eve. And how is he going to do that? By putting distancy between enmity, or distance maybe a better translation there, between your seed and her seed. Now, what is Satan's seed? First of all, what is Satan's seed? When you think of Satan's seed, what, what, is, what, is, what is he talking about? What is God, the Lord speaking of when he says, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and her seed? What is Satan's seed? Well, all the wicked schemes of Satan that manifest itself or themselves in the fallen nature of mankind, that's the seed. I mean, Satan is the one who called, caused Adam and Eve to fall. He is the one who tempted them and, and, and in essence, uh, got them to sin. They lost the glory, and then they had a fallen nature. And so, so Satan is at the root of that fallen nature. Adam and Eve's disobedience is equally responsible for that fallen nature, but it's Satan's seed that he planted in Adam and Eve that gave them that fallen nature. And he continues to plant those seeds of wickedness into men and women today. He's done that throughout history. But I think there's something else going on here too. Uh, I think it, this passage is also speaking of a genetic seed, the genetic seed of Satan. Now, what in the world would that be? I mean, can Satan have children? And we're talking about seed. We're talking about seeds that reproduce things. Can Satan reproduce himself? I believe he can, and, and I believe he has in history. Flip with me over to, to a really strange passage over in chapter 6, just a couple of chapters over. And we'll explore this in more detail when we get to chapter 6 and we get to the story of the flood. But something very interesting takes place here. We don't get much detail about it, but look at the first verse of chapter 6. It says, now it came to pass when men and begin, women began to multiply on the face of the earth, and the daughters were born to them. Look what happens here. Something very evil happens. 
that the sons of God, those are the, it's a reference to angels, and this has to be demonic angels. This is not good angels. The sons of God saw the daughters of men and that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all those they choose. And so they created this race, and really a lot of them became giants, the Nephilim. They created this race, this genetic race, of people who were half demon and half human. And it spoiled the genetic makeup of mankind. That's why when, you get, when we get to Noah, and Noah is, 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 it says about Noah that he was not, that he, all the flesh was corrupted, but his flesh was not corrupted. His seed was not corrupted. He was the only, they were the only family left on earth. And we'll explore this again when we get to the, to the story of the flood. They were the only family left on earth who hadn't been corrupted by demonic seed. And so what God is saying back here in Genesis 3, I'm going to put enmity, I'm going to put distance, space between your seed, the fallen nature, and any demonic genetic uh, problems that you might have brought into the world. I'm going to put distance between your seed and the Messiah's, the Messiah, the, her seed, the one who would come to reverse the curse. Now, how did God do that? How did God put that enmity between the devil's seed and the seed of the woman? How did he do that? You ought to know. Through the virgin birth. See, that's why you have to have a virgin birth. You know, I have people, I hear people all the time, I don't believe in the virgin birth. Well, I can understand you not believing in the virgin birth, but if you don't believe in the virgin birth, you're not saved. I can tell you that right now, because you have to have this distance between the seed of Satan and the seed of the Messiah. He has to be perfect in order to save you. So if you don't believe that he was virgin born, then you don't have a perfect Messiah. Now, it, you certainly don't get saved by believing in the virgin birth, but if you're saved, you're going to believe in the virgin birth. Because by the Spirit of God, you know that, that Christ had to be virgin born in order to reverse this curse. There had to be space between evil man, the fallen nature of man, the polluted nature of man, and the nature of God who would redeem us from our sin. He had to, our Savior has to be absolutely perfect, absolutely sinless, with no sin nature at all, at all in order to redeem us of our sin. And so that's what God is speaking of right here uh, in chapter number uh, 15. I mean in verse number 15. All right, now, uh, the next thing that we get to, God pronounces the curse on the woman. And let's read verse number 16. He says, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow. Now, notice this. A lot of people get this wrong. They will say, I will, they read this as saying, I will greatly multiply your sorrow in your conception, in your childbirth. That is true, but that's not all this is saying. It says here, I will greatly multiply your sorrow. You know, no one has sorrow like a woman has because a woman brings a child into this world and certainly she suffers the pains of childbirth but she also suffers the pain of watching that child grow up then if that child doesn't grow up if that child grows up with a sin nature and falls into 
into doing all sorts of sinful things. That mother, that woman suffers so much more than the man suffers. I've seen that over and over again as a pastor, how much the women suffer when they see someone they love die. Now, men suffer too, but not to the, to the degree women suffer. Women have been given a special heart. Guys, we know, you know, if you're married to a special woman, you know that that woman has a heart much, I don't know how to word it, uh, I want to say thicker or greater or whatever, you know. She just has a heart that just cares so much more about the one she loves than the man does. And, I, you know, I think Christ kind of equalizes that by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the love that he gives us. But by nature, a woman suffers more than the man suffers. And, and not only do they suffer the pains of seeing their children grow up and maybe die or, or suffer themselves, they suffer when they bring those children into the world. They suffer greatly. I mean... I don't know what it's like to, to bring a child into the world. I, I've never done that. I had a friend of mine when I lived in Las Vegas who used to brag that he would say, he would correct anybody that said your wife, you know, brought that child in the world. No, me and my wife brought that child in the world. He said, I went to classes with her. I was there when she, I held her hand and I, I coached her as she, she birthed that child. And I would say to that guy, man, that's a bunch of baloney. That, you didn't suffer anything like she suffered. And I don't know what that pain's like. Somebody told me at one time it's like uh, kidney stones in your back. And if you've ever had that pain, you know how bad that is. So it must be really, really bad. But, but that's part of the curse. Woman, women have, have, have uh, uh, been cursed with that since Adam and Eve fell. But I don't think that's the worst part of the curse on women. Look at the last part of this verse. It says, and I'm gonna, let, me, let me retranslate this to the way it should translate in good English. The last part of verse 16. Your desire shall be to rule over your husband, but he shall rule over you. Amen. Amen. <laughs> oh, you, you guys don't have your wives here awful bold. I can tell you that right now. I can't amen that. <laughs> That causes a lot of pain. It is not easy for a woman to let a man rule over her. And let me explain to you why, because that wasn't the way she was created. A woman was created equal to the man. I have no doubt about that. If there had not been a fall, there would, there would, this, God wouldn't have put this in as a curse. He put this and it's a curse because the woman allowed herself to be deceived by Satan, and then she talked Adam into, into doing something he shouldn't do. So God says, hey, I'm going to reverse that, and you're not going to be able to talk him into doing what he, or you're not supposed to be able to talk him anymore into doing what he shouldn't do because the man's going to be the head of the house. Now, again, that's a hard thing to swallow, but... In Christianity, and we're going to talk about the reversal of the curse in more detail in just a minute, but in, Christ, in Christendom, the curse has been reversed. Man, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, uh, slave nor free, 
male nor female. Now, what's he mean by that? He means that in Christ, we've all been made equal again because the curse has been reversed. Now, I still believe that in, 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 in the Christian marriage that the husband still has the final say, but I just don't believe that ever becomes an issue in a strong Christian marriage because if the husband and wife are equal and they're both in in, in direct contact with God, who really rules the house of a Christian home? The Lord does. And so, so the, women, the woman and the man are not going to be in disagreement in anything if they're in contact with the Lord because if the Lord is ruling the home, he's not going to tell the woman one thing and the man something else. And so that's been reversed. And you look at throughout history, you, you, up until the Reformation, women were suppressed in just about every society. They didn't have a say about anything. They couldn't vote. They didn't have any, any uh, political clout. They really, for the most part, there are some exceptions to that, but for the most part, they were suppressed in society, totally suppressed. What changed that? When the curse, when, when the Reformation came and people got back into the Word and they realized that there's neither male nor female, that no longer should the woman be suppressed. She's equal to the man. So in Christendom, uh, that curse has been reversed. And that's why in our society, in American societies where you start, and in British society where you saw the Reformation take place, you also saw this Reformation in women's rights. And, and that's why it's so amazing to me that these feminists today are embracing Islam. That's the most suppressive religion in the world. Why in the world would they embrace such a thing? Why would they want to go back under the domination of the male. When in Christendom, they're not. In Christianity, they're not under domination of the male. But anyway, that's the curse. And, and that's the way it's been for, through, throughout most of history. Now we get to the curse of Adam. Listen to what happens to Adam. Then Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree, you've got responsibility too, of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, Watch what happens to you. Now, again, this is minor stuff compared to losing the glory of God, compared to dying spiritually. But God wasn't done with them because he's going to kick them out of the garden. He's going to make life tough. Why is God cursing everything at this point? So he can redeem everything. The curse is actually the beginning of the reversal of the curse because it's the curse, curses in this world that bring us back to Christ that bring us back, that bring us down to a point where we're willing to receive Christ. That's why your life and my life has been cursed to a certain degree, to, to drive us to the Lord. These things are tutors that drive us to the Lord. And so God's going to make it tough on Adam because he wants to save mankind, not because he hates them and he's trying to get revenge. He's trying to help them. And so listen to what he says. He says in verse number 17, Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of of your wife, and if you've eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the herb of the field. In other words, you're not going to be able to pick your fruit off of a tree anymore, your wheat off of a tree, this ever-growing tree. You're going to have to work to make it happen. And not only that, you're going to have to manufacture your bread. And so in verse 19, he says, in the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. You're going to have to work to get your bread. And, till, and then look at this part of the curse. 
till you return to the ground. God never intended for Adam to return to the ground. He knew he was going to when he created him, but that wasn't his intent. Adam was created to live forever. But now, like the animals, he's going to die, like the rest of creation, because death is coming to the world. He says, till you, till you return to the ground, for, you, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are. Hey, the spirit's gone. You're nothing more than dust. And to that dust you shall return. You know what, I, you know what God was saying to Adam here? He was saying to him, from now on, your life is going to be a struggle. You're going to struggle on two main fronts. You're going to struggle spiritually, and you're going to struggle physically. You know, Adam and Eve were not created to struggle spiritually. They had no knowledge of good and evil. The only wrong thing they could do was eat of the forbidden fruit. So they didn't even know what good and evil was. But the moment they ate of that fruit, the war began because they knew good and evil. And you just think about that in your own life, what a battle that creates. Everything we do, every thought we have, that's why it says in the Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that we're to take every thought captive to Christ because our thoughts will go all over the place. They will be as evil as you possibly can dream up if you don't take them captive to Christ. There's a war that, is, that has taken place in the mind and soul of every human being since Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit. And so they, they, they doomed themselves to struggling spiritually and doomed mankind to struggling spiritually uh, really until Jesus Christ returns to this earth. And so there's a spiritual struggle that goes on. And then there's a physical struggle. I mean, I mean, because of this physical curse, that no more did they have the life of ease. I mean, from thorns and thistles and weeds, they would grow their plants. And from the sweat and toil of, of hard work, they would get their food. And then, you know, the worst part of this thing is, when your life is over, he says, you're going to die. And just like the animals, uh, you're going to return to the dust. You're going to be dust. You're going to die, and your body's going to deteriorate until it's nothing more than dust. Boy, that certainly sounds like an Epicurean epitaph for mankind. Labor all your life so that you can eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. And that seemed to be Adam's fate after the curse. And a lot of people see that as our fate now. And without Christ, that is your fate. Look at verse number 20. He goes on in verse number 20, and, and he says something very interesting here. He says in verse number 20, And Adam called his wife, wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. That's what Eve means. It means living. You know, it's amazing to me how the very school of science that scoffs at the truth of the Bible often ends up proving the Bible's amazing accuracy. It's amazing to me. I mean, 
let me give you an example. For thousands and thousands of years, so-called scientists on this earth laughed at the picture of the earth that the Bible gives, that somehow that the earth was this sphere hung out on nothing. That's what the Bible says. It's a sphere, it's a circle hung out on nothing. And they laughed at that because they believed, most scientists until uh, a, a thousand years ago believed that the earth was flat and that something held it up, some force held it up, some force like Atlas or these two elephants. I mean, it was really brilliant scientific stuff that they, they, they adhered to. But then came the modern telescope and, and space exploration, and lo and behold, modern science has determined that the earth is a sphere hung out on nothing. Well, Job tells you about that. All of the oldest book in the Bible tells you about that. So you didn't, have, you didn't need science to tell you about that. Here we're told that Eve is the mother of all living. And until DNA was discovered in the 1950s, all science laughed at the idea that the mother, that Eve was the mother of all living. And now they tell us that we can trace ourselves back to one, every person can trace themselves back to one female ancestor. Let, let me read to you from, from one scientific journal I'm reading now. The human DNA shows that all living humans descend in an unbroken line purely from their mothers and through the mothers of their, those mothers. Back until they converge on one woman we now call, you've got to give it a scientific name here, mitochondrial mitro mitro Eve. That's her new name. Just Eve works fine because that's the name in the Bible. She's the mother of all living. You, you didn't need all that science to determine that. Now as we come to verse 21, we saw the beginning of the curse being reversed in the, at the end of verse uh, 15. And now in verse 16, uh, I mean in verse 21, I don't know why I said 16. In verse 21, we see this curse reversed. We see this beginning of this reversal in verse 21 too because look what happens and we talked about this in detail last week so I'm not going to talk about it in detail today but in verse 21 it says and for Adam and his wife the Lord made tunics I mean here, here they are they've clothed themselves in fig leaves and you know what's going to happen to those fig leaves they're going to all uh, die and, and uh, fall off and so they're going to be naked again and so what the Lord does he clothes them with God made tunics of skin and clothed them and again as we talked about last week the reason God used skins, one thing, one reason is they would certainly last longer than fig leaves, but that wasn't the point. The point was that animals had to be killed, that blood had to be sacrificed, that, and, because, and, there's, and the life is in the blood. And so God was showing them that their sin was going to have to be covered. It was going to have to be covered. And, and it pointed to the animal sacrificial system that we'll see later on when you get into uh, Exodus and Leviticus and, and Numbers and those books and and uh, in the book of Hebrews, that, that, that Levitical system, uh, uh, that, that's the blood that this pointed to. But that is only a shadow of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made. And that's what this truly, really is pointing to, is the blood sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on the cross. All right, now, with that said, let's go to, to, uh, to verse number uh, 22. It says, Then God said, Behold... The man has become like one of us. Now notice the, the pronoun there, the first person plural. Uh, he's become like one of us. Uh, 
so you get this plurality of the essence of God, and what do we see that in? We see that in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in the Trinity. But keep in mind, all the Godhead dwells in Christ bodily. So this us, the Creator, is still none other than Jesus Christ. And so it says, Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he be put out of his, lest he put out of his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, we're going to kick him out of the garden of Eden. Now, why didn't want God want man, Adam, to live forever at this point? Why didn't he want him to live forever? Well, two reasons. First of all, because he told Adam and Eve that if you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. Just like he tells us, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. If you've ever sinned, you're going to die. That's the punishment for sin. But why did God make that the punishment? Because he wanted to hit them really hard? Because he, he wanted to, to get back at them? He wanted revenge? No, because he knew once they ate of the, of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, and they knew the difference between good and evil, then they were going to have this constant choice to make, and they weren't always going to make the right choice. They were going to sin. They were going to do evil. And the more time they had to live, the more evil they would become. That's why God chooses to give us uh, 70 years or a few more on this earth and no more because we wouldn't become better and better. As a society, as, as a human race, we would get worse and worse. And all you got to do is look what's happening to our nation. You have this fresh new nation that came in here 200 or so years ago, and it was kind of, it was sort of based, I think it really was based on, on uh, judo Christian beliefs, and, and uh, uh, it started out really good. But now you look where we're at. In just a few hundred years, what's happening to this society, how sinful it's become, and you can see why God says at some point i got to stop it. And so he says you're not going to be able to eat of this fruit anymore. You're not going to be able to live forever. And then he says to, to, then it says in verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. Now sent him really isn't strong enough. You get a little stronger uh, more accurate uh, description of what happened in verse 24. So he drove out the man. He drove out Adam. He drove him out of the Garden of Eden. He said, you're not going to stay here anymore. You're not going to have a life of ease, and you're not going to eat of the tree of life. Now you would think if God spoke to him, he just would have packed his bag and said, okay, Lord, you don't want me around anymore. And he's crying. He packed his bag and he head on out to earth. Because, because notice what it says here. It says that, he says, so he drove the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden. Now, we, we saw when we studied the Garden of Eden uh, back in an earlier chapter that that word east there is not like our term east, west, south, north. It's not a directional word there what it is it really means edge in other words he he placed cherubim at the edge of the garden of eden 
Remember when we talked about the, the location of the Garden of Eden? I firmly believe that the Garden of Eden is still there and that it sits on the edge of heaven and on the edge of earth. And so uh, God drives Adam through the Garden of Eden and onto the fallen earth. Now, why does he have to drive him out of there? I mean, again, you would think he would just say, okay, Lord, I, I sin, I accept the punishment, I'll head over to earth and I'll see you later. You, you got to stop and think about this. Adam, when he was created, was created a fully grown man, a man with a, I believe, a perfect mind. I believe he was the smartest man who ever lived, even though he did the dumbest thing he could possibly have done, listen to the woman. And the woman was the smartest woman who's ever lived, and she did the dumbest thing in the world, listening to the serpent. But Adam, even though he was a fully developed man, was really just a baby. I mean, he had only lived maybe days at the most, months, when he fell. And every day God had come from Zion and he had walked over to the Garden of Eden and he had fellowship with Adam. And, he had, and, and Adam had this glowing light and he had this glory and he was fellowshipping with God and he could just pluck and eat all he wanted. He had a great job. Uh, I mean, in the utopian environment. I mean, he had it made. And stop and think about this. God was the only father he ever knew. You go to the genealogy of Jesus Christ over in Luke chapter 3, and you look at the end of that genealogy, and it says Adam, the son of God. And so God was his father. You know, we talk about God being our father. Well, you don't have any idea of God, the concept of God your father compared to what Adam had. I mean, God was truly his father, and he knew that. And his father says, get out of here. And Adam thinks in his mind, I'll never see my father again. I'll never see God again. I certainly won't be walking with him in the cool of the morning any longer. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if he just plopped himself down. He says, I'm not going. Lord, I love you too much to go. And the Lord in his love, and maybe with tears in his eyes, drove Adam out of the Garden of Eden. And he placed cherubim at the edge of the garden, and those cherubim had swords of light. What kind of light was that? It was a blinding light, a light that would hide, a light we don't know, that God knows, that would hide, would hide the dimension in which the Garden of Eden sits. I believe it's sitting there right now, near the heaven, on the, it's the Garden of God on the outskirts of the city of Zion. I believe if you went to Jerusalem and you could have your eyes opened, you could see what Jacob saw. You could see angels descending and ascending from the Garden of Eden. And you could see that. So look at how terrible this was. I mean, Adam's lost his relationship with his father. He's lost his glory. He's lost his job. He's got a new job that's so much harder in a new place that's so much, uh, that's a fallen world. And now these animals are fallen. They're, they're all of these dinosaurs at one time he could pet now want to eat him. You know, I mean, everything is different. And, 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 and so this curse 
is a terrible thing. And anyone that thinks that God just somehow winks at sin needs to revisit chapter 3 of Genesis. That's why it's here. The wages of sin is death. I mean death in every way. Death to the spirit, death to the body, death to peace, death to joy, death to fellowship with God, death to right fellowship with one another. And, and along with that comes pain and sorrow and sweat, all because of that curse. So every part of life is, becomes cursed. And every part of society becomes cursed. I almost want to quit, but we can't quit there. We've got to get to the good news. Even though God cursed the earth, I love what Jeremiah says in Lamentations chapter 3. He says, his mercies are new every morning. So even though God cursed the earth, you know, you've got to be blind not to see all the good things that he left behind, that he left in place. There's so many, and we've distorted it all even more with our sin, but there's so many things that are good about life. I mean, even though it's cursed, there's so many things that are good. You take, we talked about a woman. A woman has great labor pains and great sorrows for when, when she sees terrible things happen to her children. But, 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 but listen to what Jesus said in John 16, 21, he says, A woman when she is in labor has sorrow because her hour has come, but as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. I mean, the way she brings the child into the world is, is part of the curse. Some of the things the child is going to go through is part of the curse. But a child brings great joy to the mother. And yes, after the curse, Adam was going to have to sweat and labor for his sustenance, and all of us have to sweat and labor for our sustenance. But, but listen to what, what uh, Solomon says in Proverbs. He says, the desires of the diligent are satisfied through their hard work. What's Solomon say? He said, there's joy in your work. I mean, even your work can be a joy in, in Jesus Christ. And yes, after the curse... Satan has been able to wreak havoc on, on the lives of men and women all over this earth. But let me tell you what. He was defeated before he even got started good. Yes, Adam, sin brought cur the curse of death onto this earth. But no sooner did that curse begin than the merciful Lord began to reverse that curse. First of all, look at this. He cursed the devil. And he promised through the Messiah that he would crush the head of Satan. And, and that, yeah, the Messiah would be bruised, but that bruise would not kill the Messiah. On the third day, that Messiah would be raised from the dead. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, 5. He says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. So he uses that same metaphor, speaking of the cross. I mean, the cross seemed to be the doom of Jesus Christ, but, but it, was only, it only bruised him because on the third day he was raised from the dead. But before, he was, but, but before he died on that cross, 
he had paid for the sins of the world by hanging on that tree. So what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, he says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse. He reversed the curse, having become a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So by hanging on that tree, God hanging on that tree, he's reversed that curse. And that's why when you see Jesus Christ hanging on that cross, you see him wearing that crown of thorns, those thorns and thistles as a sign that the, that curse, the curse of the thorns and the, the thistles has been reversed. And then Paul could say in Romans chapter 5, verse 18, he says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, through Jesus' righteous act, the free gift uh, came to all men, resulting in justification of life. And then he goes on in verse 19, and he says, For as by one man's disobedience, by Adam's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's Christ's obedience, many will be made righteous and because we've been made righteous we can now live the abundant life that God intended for us to live forever don't you see how much God loves us I mean even the curse is his love I mean the curse is to drive us back to him so that the curse can be reversed through the cross and we can live forever with Jesus Christ back in the Garden of Eden, back in the city of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for what you've done for us through Jesus Christ. And Lord, as terrible as the curse was and is on our on, our, on us and our society, Lord. Lord, you have given us a way to reverse that curse in our lives by turning to you and turning to the cross and looking at that cross and seeing you there dying for our sins and reversing all that's evil in this world. Lord, your work isn't complete yet. We know there's still work to do. There's still people to be saved, Lord. But for those of us who know you, Lord, we've begun to have the abundant life that you've attended, you intended for us to have in eternity past. And we just thank you for that. We thank you for what you did for us on the cross. We're thank for, thankful for your Holy Spirit that gives us new light, life, Lord, and light that we don't have to live in darkness any longer. Father, if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, Lord, I know that they know that their life is cursed. Lord, and you want to reverse that curse in their lives too. And so I just ask that today, Lord, that you touch them in a way that they make today the day of their salvation. Father, we just thank you again for all you've done for us. We thank you in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.